The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning celebrating Palm Sunday. And we have the privilege of hindsight. There are those that day that cried out Hosanna, praying that Jesus would come and save. And Lord, we cry out Hosanna today, knowing that is exactly what he did. And so we come with great confidence and great joy, continuing to shout that plea for help, but also as praise. Hosanna, come and help us. Come and save us. Lord, we confess that we are often a very distracted people. We are a people that chase after many kings, looking for one that will satisfy. God, pray today that you would, that you would show us those things, those people in our life that we tend to worship, that we tend to pursue for the hope of joy and love. And God, may they become secondary to our great king, King Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. About 30 years ago, after reading some legends of King Arthur, Johnny Rothwell, who is now in his 60s, saw such similar traits between King Arthur and himself that he decided that he was, in fact, the reincarnation of King Arthur. He was so convinced of this that he purchased a sword used in the movie Excalibur about King Arthur, and then he legally changed his name to King Arthur. And so if you looked at his uh, passport or his driver's license, it would say King Arthur. Now he opened up a Facebook page under the name King Arthur, but Facebook keeps deleting it because they don't think he's the genuine article for some reason. I don't know why. Johnny used to be part of the British army and was a member of a biker gang, but he is now a pagan priest that dresses up in robes and carries his swords and rides a Kawasaki motorbike. That's what they call it in that part of the world, I guess. His modern day battle is not against foreign armies, but against a charity called the English Heritage. And he has waged war against this charity because they charge too much for parking at Stonehenge. He has several unpaid tickets that he refuses to pay, but also his main complaint is that on summer solstice, the most popular day of the year to go to Stonehenge, they charge $18 for parking. Now that is a lot of money, I agree, but I'm not sure if that is a battle that I want to spend my life fighting. Now we may look at this and we may think, you know, this guy is amusing and we may chuckle at it. He actually has several followers who also believe that he is King Arthur. And so they join him in these pagan rituals at Stonehenge. Now, we may listen and hear, but who would believe this guy? Who would follow this guy? Who would think this guy is king? But the fact that people follow him should not be a surprise to us. Because by nature, all of us long for a king, a king that we can praise, a king that we can pledge our allegiance to. Even here in the good old U.S. of A., we have our kings. We have the king of rock and roll who is 
Elvis, right? We have the king of pop. Good job. We have the king of late night. Johnny Carson, good. We had someone just simply called the king in basketball, and his name is LeBron James. And then we have the king of beers, Budweiser, right? We promote these people and these things as kings, not only so we can praise them, but so we can pledge our allegiance to them. You see, we have this longing for a king, and it is not a bad longing. Actually, it's a longing given to us by God. And we have this longing for the king because we understand that we live in a shattered and broken world, and we understand that we cannot fix this world. And so we look to someone that is bigger than us, that is more powerful than us, that is more influential than us to come and fix this world. And we look to these kings in order to do that. We crown kings. And so my question is, who do you crown as king? Maybe you crown a certain politician and you allege yourself, you you pledge your allegiance to them. You praise them before everybody. You minimize their weaknesses and exalt their strengths in the great hopes that they will fix everything that is broken with this country. Maybe you crown an athlete as your king, hoping that they will bring another title. Maybe you crown a lover as your king, hoping that they will provide for all your deepest longings. We have a king complex. We long to praise a king. We long to pledge allegiance to a king. We long to put our hope in a king. During Jesus' ministry, he was constantly evading fame. I don't know if you remember this, but he would heal someone or he would do a great teaching And Jesus would say, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. My hour has not yet come. And then in John 6, we read that Jesus feeds 5,000 people miraculously. And then it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so throughout Jesus' ministry, he is constantly avoiding People crowning him king. But that all changes on Palm Sunday. In the last week of Jesus' life, this Passion Week, Jesus stops escaping the public pronouncement of his kingship. And he not only embraces it, but he actually encourages it. If you would please open up to Matthew 21. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 today. It's page 826 in the Red Bible and page 1048 in the Children's Bible. Palm Sunday is the announcement of Jesus' kingship. And this announcement answers many important questions for us. Like, how do we know Jesus is the king of God? How do we know he is God's king sent to us? How do we know that he is not an imposter like a King Arthur? We also have the question answered, if Jesus is the king of creation, what kind of king is he? And what does Jesus' kingship mean for you and for me? And so all of these important questions are answered in the announcement of his kingship, which we'll look at today. And so the first thing we see about this King Jesus and the announcement of his kingship is that Jesus is the promised king. Let's read together Matthew 21, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, 
Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the fall of a beast of burden. In verses 4 and 5, it is pointing us to a prophecy of the Old Testament. A prophecy written by the prophet Zechariah. You see, the book of Zechariah is written to the people of God who are returning to Jerusalem from exile. And they are extremely discouraged because they're trying to reinstate the priestly system. They're trying to rebuild the temple. They're trying to revamp the worship of God's people. But they are greatly discouraged because there is military opposition hindering them in their progress. And so in Zechariah chapter 8, the Lord comes to them and he promises to his brokenhearted, beloved people, a future peace, a future prosperity, a future salvation. And then we get to Zechariah chapter 9. And God tells his people that he will bring these things through a promised king who will judge and crush and destroy Israel's enemies. And then we get to Zechariah 9 verse 9. And we are told how this awesome king, this promised king will come. Zechariah 9.9 says this. See if it sounds familiar. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This was one indication, one sign that Jesus was the king, the promised king, and the Savior, that he would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, if this was the only prophecy about Jesus, we might be very suspect, right? I mean, anyone can probably rent a donkey, I'm assuming, right? Anyone can get a donkey, saddle up, and ride into Jerusalem. But this is not the only prophecy there is about Jesus. You see, later on in this passage, and we'll get into more detail with it later, but in verse 14, we read that Jesus goes into the temple and we read that the blind and the lame come to Jesus in the temple and he heals them. And in response, they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. You see, the fact that Jesus was healing the blind and the lame was a very significant sign authenticating that he is the promised king. Again, if we go back to the Old Testament prophets, we see these signs are given so that when the king comes, when the true king comes, they can identify him and know that this is the promised king that God has given to his people. In Isaiah 35, it says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame men leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The healing of the blind and of the lame were signs from God. You know, anyone can get a mule, sure. But how many of us can make a blind man see? How many of us can make a lame man walk? You see, these healings were a sign 
that God had sent his promised king to come and save his people, that he had come to establish his kingdom of redemption. Now, these are not the only signs that show Jesus to be the true and authentic promised king. The Old Testament is full of prophecies about this king, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Prophecies that are outside his control, like where he was born in Bethlehem, where he was from, Nazareth, that he would come up out of Egypt where he escaped when the babies were slaughtered, that he'd be born of a virgin. None of us could control these things. None of us, none of us picked where we were born. And yet all these were signs to show that Jesus is the authentic king come from God. You know, with my kids, I occasionally get to play the game Guess Who with them. Have you ever played the game Guess Who? And uh, you have this board with all of these people on there, and they all look different, and they choose a character, and you choose a character, and you're trying to figure out which character they choose. And so you'll guess certain things, right? You'll guess, are they wearing a hat? No. And so you, you, you close all the people who are, who are wearing a hat. And then you'll say, do they have, do they have gray hair? Yes or no? And, and, and then you ask all these questions. Do they have glasses? And you use all these to whittle down to make sure you know which one they have chosen. And you say, did you choose Mr. Jones? And say, oh, yes, you got it, right? Or they say no. And then, then I'll say, you lied about something, right? There's something not right here. <laughs> See, in the Old Testament, God does not just give five clues or ten clues about who the Son of God is going to be, about who this promised king is. He gives over 300 signs that we would know that this is the authentic promised king. Many can claim it, but only one could fulfill all of these signs. That he would be from the tribe of Judah, that he would be traded for 30 pieces of silver, that those pieces of silver would be used to buy the potter's field. That his hands and his feet would be pierced. That he would be crucified next to criminals. That his garments would be divided by soldiers casting lots. That he would not have his bones broken. That he would be buried with the rich. And that he would be raised from the dead. You see, just as anyone could claim to be King Arthur, anyone could claim to be the promised Davidic king. But only one fulfilled all of the signs. Common signs like riding a donkey into Jerusalem. Miraculous signs like healing the lame and the blind. But even uncontrollable signs like being born in Bethlehem, being a Nazarene. And so God throughout the Old Testament leaves no doubt that Jesus is the promised king. That Jesus is the king of kings. Now that's not the only thing we learn about on this Palm Sunday. Yes, Jesus is the promised king, but we also see that Jesus is a paradoxical king, meaning that there are things in Jesus' kingship that seem contradictory to one another. Let's read verses 5 through 11. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of God, the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. 
The people have seen the signs. And so they had been waiting for a long time for this moment, waiting for Jesus to claim his kingship. And so they give this triumphal entry to Jesus. Again, in verse 7, we read that, that they brought a donkey and a colt and put on their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. It's been recorded that this was a customary way that people of a city would welcome home their triumphant king. That when a king would go out to battle, when they would, they would have victory over their enemies, that when they would come back down, come back to town, the city would come out to them. And they would wave palm branches because this was the national symbol. And it was a symbol of freedom. It would be like waving our American flag. And they would lay down their coats as to roll out the red carpet and to welcome him back into the city. And so this is a victory celebration. This is a triumphal entry. Verse 9 continues and it says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As Pastor Chad had mentioned earlier, Hosanna means help us. More literally, it means save us, right? And it was simultaneously a word of praise and a cry for help. They're acknowledging Jesus as the son of David, the prophet that Moses promises. This was indeed a triumphal entry, a great celebration. But it was also paradoxically a very humble entry. Verse 5 again. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Jesus is headed into Jerusalem, and he's not coming back from battle. He is headed into battle. He is going where he is going to accomplish his victory. He is coming in, as Zechariah 9 promised, to judge and to crush Israel's enemy. But Jesus does not come in riding on a war horse, but comes in on a donkey, an emblem of peace and humility. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus come in on a donkey in his triumphal entry? Well, it's because it would be through his humility, through losing, that King Jesus would ultimately win and be triumphant. You see, Jesus wasn't just a humble and triumphant king. He was a king that was triumphant through his humility. I'm not a big NBA fan, but I like sports talk radio. And there is this major controversy brewing in the NBA. Because NBA teams have started this practice where they will rest all of their good players on a given night. Maybe you've heard of it. And people are very frustrated because they will travel from far away and spend their good earned money to see these superstars and they'll show up and find out that all of them are being rested. So people are very frustrated by this. But the owners and the player, the coaches have learned to rest their players because they will intentionally lose this game. But as a result of resting their players and losing this game, they have a better chance of winning the championship. This was actually something that the San Antonio Spurs coach first did. And, and so all of them are following suit. He would rest his best players. They would lose the game, but then they would go on to win the championship. Or to put it another way, they would lose the battle in order to win the war. You know, Jesus wasn't just a king that was triumphant and humble, but he was triumphant through his humility, 
when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, he was riding into a battle that he was intending to lose. He was intending to lose the battle on Good Friday so that he could win the war on Resurrection Sunday. Philippians 2, 8 through 11 says, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In humility, Jesus became a man. In humility, Jesus rode on a donkey. In humility, Jesus died at the hands of men whom he created. In humility, he hung on the cross and was spat upon and mocked and ridiculed. In humility, he died in front of a watching world. And yet Jesus did this to win the war. Jesus died on the cross. He lost his life to take on our sin and our humiliation, to pay the price of what we deserve. But the good news is that Jesus lost that Friday, ended in his victory and our victory on Resurrection Sunday. He lost his life Friday, but would raise from the dead in victory on Sunday. Jesus lost the battle on Friday to win the eternal war on Sunday. The war against Satan, the war against sin, and the war against death. And so Jesus is not only the promised king, he is a paradoxical king who not only comes in victoriously, but also humbly to accomplish our salvation upon the cross. Finally, Jesus is the polarizing king. When Jesus makes his way into the city, Jesus enters into the temple, probably the day after the triumphal entry, so Monday. And he goes in and we see that he's absolutely polarized and that people either love him or hate him, but that nobody was indifferent towards him. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You know, people often think that Jesus is upset because they're mixing faith with selling items, with, with, uh, with merchandise. But that's not the reality at all. You see, these things were very important for the people who were traveling from far away. Folks would travel from hundreds of miles away by foot, and they had to bring an unblemished sacrifice to sacrifice at the temple and worship of God. Now, to bring them hundreds of miles and, and hope that they don't twist an ankle or, or get cut on a bush or something like that was very difficult to do. And so these businesses were necessary so that people could come and they could purchase an unblemished sacrifice and then offer it before God. You see, Jesus' problem was not that they were doing this business, but where they were doing this business. If you look closely, it tells us that it was done in the temple. More specifically, it was probably done in the court of the Gentiles. And so where the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were to gather and to pray and to worship the Lord, there were herds of animals mooing and lowing and whatever animals do. And so you can imagine how distracting this would have been from, for people to come and worship the Lord God. And so Jesus kicks him out of the temple because he is jealous for their worship. 
He knows that this is what they were created to do. And he casts them out so that they can come in humility, worship the Lord. And so their problem is not that they are selling these things, but where they are selling them and also how they are selling them. Jesus says here, you are a den of robbers, which gives us a clue that maybe they are exploiting those who are coming from long distances away. Maybe they are overcharging them. Maybe they have unbalanced balances. Whatever it might be, they seem to be doing it in an ungodly way. And so you can imagine how polarizing Jesus must have been, that these merchants must have hated Jesus. But those who came to worship the Lord, the Gentiles, were delighted that somebody stood up for their right to worship the one true king. Jesus is a polarizing king, and we see this going forward. Verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. You see how polarizing he is? Some people say, Hosanna, this is the son of David. This is the promised king. Yet others were indignant. They were angry. Some worshiped him. Some cried out to him, Lord, save. And yet others hated him. Verse 16 And they, the priests and scribes, said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. In response to the priest's indignation, Jesus quotes scripture, which usually is a pretty good idea, except maybe in this case. You see, Jesus is quoting Psalm 8. And this is what Psalm 8 says. Psalm 8 says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? You see, Psalm 8 was a praise psalm to the Lord God. (laughs) It was a praise psalm to the one who created all things and sustains all things. It was a praise to the God who had delivered them up out of Egypt, up out of slavery into the promised land. It was a praise to God. And Jesus says, this is about me. I am God. I am Lord. And their praise is right and true. And so you see what Jesus is doing here when he responds with scripture. He's actually pouring gasoline onto the fire and it is exploding. Tim Keller points out that Jesus is forcing a decision from these officials to either put their hope in him or to hate him. Either forcing their hand to either kill him or to crown him. But they could not remain neutral. Nobody could remain neutral. Yesterday, I was driving in Eau Claire, and I, my, my in-laws live in Fall Creek, and I borrowed their truck and headed into town to do sermon prep, and I'm headed back, and, uh, and this thing happens where, I don't know if this happens, well, it happens to everyone who drives, but I'm about 25 feet out, or 25 yards out from the stoplight, and the stoplight turns yellow, okay? Now, when the stoplight turns yellow, you have two choices, okay? Um, when you see a yellow stoplight, what does that mean to you? Speed up. Others say, slow down, right? 
When you see a yellow light and you're about 25 feet out, either you got to hit the gas or you got to hit the brake. But you can't remain neutral, right? Because if you remain neutral, there will either be a car accident or a camera that take pictures and send it to you in the mail, right? And so, so you can't remain neutral. You have to choose one or the other. Or if you're driving and you come to a T intersection, you can't go straight. You can't stay there. You have to either go left or right. And so in this situation, Jesus is forcing us, forcing these, these priests to make a decision, forcing them to decide, are they going to crown him or are they going to crucify him? But they cannot remain indifferent. You know, it's been famously said that with all the claims that Jesus made to be the son of God, to be the promised king, that Jesus was either a liar or he was a lunatic or he was Lord. He was either a liar in that he knew that he was not the promised king, but he promoted himself as such to gain fame. Or he was a lunatic who really thought that he was King Arthur. I mean, the Lord, right? And he wanted their worship, but he wasn't. Or he was indeed who he said he was. And he was Lord. And so, friends, you can love Jesus or reject Jesus, but you cannot remain neutral about Jesus. Either accept him as Lord of your life or you deny his claims. You trust Jesus as your Savior or you must turn your back on him. You must crown him or crucify him. But you cannot remain neutral because his claims are too big. The proof is too overwhelming And the stakes of eternity are too high. So Jesus is a polarizing king. Let me end with this. This Saturday, we're having our, it's not our first Easter egg hunt. Um, When we first hold services at Pamper Park, we had an illegal Easter egg hunt there, which I found out about later. Um, Sometime easier to ask for forgiveness and permission, right? And so, um, but this is kind of our first official legal Easter egg hunt. Yay, it's legal. And, um, and, and, you know, I remember as a kid just being so excited to go, right? And so before the Easter egg hunt, I'd say, Mom, let's go, let's go, let's go. Because I knew that once the Easter egg hunt started, that it would be over very quick, right? It was a vanishing opportunity. And so I would encourage you, get here early. Because 10 a.m., the Easter egg hunt will start. 10.03 a.m., the Easter egg hunt might be over, okay? Depending how many kids are here. It is a vanishing opportunity. Now, there will be bounce houses and other cool stuff, but, but get here early because it is a vanishing opportunity. You know, we read later in scriptures that Jesus will make another triumphal entry and our opportunity to follow him as king will be over. This triumphal entry that comes in the future will not be such a humble triumphal entry, It will not be so meek, but it will be powerful, and it will be dominant. We read of this second triumphal entry in Revelation chapter 19. If you want, you can close your eyes and and picture this. John, the apostle John writing these things, writing of the final days, talks about this second triumphal entry. And he says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey, a white horse, The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed and robed, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. 
And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Many commentaries point out that we live in this sliver of time between the donkey and the horse. We live in this sliver of time between these two triumphal entries, and we do not know when the second triumphal entry will happen. We do not know when Christ will come riding on his horse to make all things right again. And so my plea for you is this, to cry out to Jesus today, Hosanna, to cry out, Lord, save me. You are the promised king. You are the paradoxical king who is triumphant through the humility. And you are a polarizing king. And my hope today is that you would not reject him, but that you would trust him as your king and as your savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for coming. Thank you for your triumphal entry 2,000 years ago. And thank you for the one to come in which you will make all things right again. Lord, pray that you would draw us to yourself. God, may you conquer more territory in our hearts. May your kingdom spread through our lives, God, through our actions, through our desires. And may we delight in you, the Hosanna King that has come to accomplish our salvation. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. On the Thursday of the week of Passion Week, Jesus sat with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal in which they celebrate the salvation of God for the people of God. And Jesus takes it and he transforms this Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. And we read that Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. You see, the Jews thought that the king would come to defeat the Romans, but he came to defeat a greater foe, to defeat sin and death. If you're here today and you trust in Jesus as your king, if you believe that he came and died for you and you have entrusted yourself to him for your salvation, this is for you to nourish you in your faith. But if you're here today and you're not sure, that's okay. We're glad you're here. But we would encourage you to make haste and to choose to make Jesus king of your life. But we would ask at this time that you not take these elements. For this is for those who truly trust in Christ as their king and their savior. We'll have several stations set up throughout the sanctuary. When you're ready, please stand and go and get the elements and bring it, together, bring it back to your seat. And we'll partake together as one body, the body of Christ.